Uh, please turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 25. 2 Kings, chapter 25. Today marks the start of Advent, uh, which runs each year from December the 1st through to December the 24th. And um, it comes from, the word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming. And that is the, Greek, that is the, the Latin translation of the Greek word perusia, which is the word that is used in the New Testament to reference the second coming of Jesus Christ. So there's a little bit of Latin slash Greek lesson for you today. Um, and, and there are those, there are denominations that kind of ritualize the season of Advent and they pray certain prayers and do certain things. And I'm not advocating for any of that. I don't necessarily feel like any of that is biblical in any way. Um, but I do think that this is a special time that believers can really focus about, focus on the promises of God in Christ. That we can take this season as we look forward to Christmas to think about how we have a God who makes and keeps promises. There is not a promise that God has made that he has failed to keep. And praise God for that. that and the primary promise that God has kept is that he sent his son into the world to save sinners, which is what we celebrate at Christmas. But we also know that he is coming again to make all things new, to reconcile all things back to himself. And so during this time, I try to, in my own life, focus on what Christ has done and the fact that Christ is coming again. And so... My aim this morning is to turn our hearts toward Christ by looking at some promises of God and how he kept them. And as we do that, I, I want us to rejoice in the fact that we have hope because God does not fail because he keeps his promises. And so as you can see on the screen, uh, the title of my message today is Three Promises. Um, and so we're in 2 Kings chapter 25, and I'm going to be in a lot of scripture today. And so you can turn with me wherever I'm at. You can feel free or you can just listen carefully. Um, but I, I don't want you to get left behind or overwhelmed. But I want, I want to make sure that we see where these promises are and how they've been fulfilled. And so leave it to me to be the guy that's going to preach a sermon about looking forward to Jesus' second coming by preaching out of a chapter that's about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and the exile of the people of Judah. Leave it to me, right? I'm that guy. And so before we get to 2 Kings 25, I'm going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 31. That's where I'm going to start today, and you can turn there if you want, or you can just listen. I'm just going to read two verses. And so we're at the end of Moses' life. Moses is getting ready to die. And God's literally the one that tells him that, by the way. And God speaks to Moses and tells him something that 
Moses is probably not surprised to hear, but I'm sure he's not pleased to hear it either. And this is what it says, Deuteronomy 31, verse 16. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us. And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all the evil that they have done, because they have turned aside to other gods. God says to Moses that he's going to die. And after he dies, the people of Israel are going to go after other gods. They're going to go after false idols. And boy, do they ever. Wicked king after wicked king leads a horribly sinful people who constantly turn away from God. And not just turn away from God, but turn against God. They're not just ignoring God, they're actively hostile toward God. And the kingdom has already been divided into two separate nations, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, and Israel has already been destroyed. And only Judah is left. And all of this comes to a head under a king named Manasseh in 2 Kings chapter 21. Now Manasseh's father was a better king than most. His father was a man whose name was Hezekiah. And Hezekiah tore down the altars to the false gods. He, he tore down the high places. But he was also a foolish man. And he did foolish things because he was prideful. So when, when the, the kingdom of Babylon, before they were a major world power, sent a representative, Hezekiah took them on a tour and showed them all of the treasures that the nation of Israel had. The Bible says there was nothing that they had that he didn't show them. So now these people go back to Babylon and like, man, I know where we can get some cool stuff. Hezekiah is also told that judgment is going to come against the kingdom and Hezekiah says, that's okay. It won't happen until after I'm dead. So he's better than most, but he's still not great. But then he has this son named Manasseh. Manasseh becomes king when he's 12 years old. Always a bad idea when you let middle schoolers have power over things. <laughs> and it says that Manasseh reigned in Israel, for, or in Judah, excuse me, for 55 years. And he was an evil, wicked Man, when he comes to power, the Bible tells us that he rebuilds all of these false idols, all of these high places that his father had torn down. Not only that, but he builds altars to these gods inside the temple. He builds them inside the temple. And that brings in all the wickedness that comes along with this false worship, like temple prostitution. 
These things are going on inside the temple of God. Manasseh practices child sacrifice using his own children. It tells us in 2 Kings 21 that Manasseh sacrifices his own son to false gods. It says that he utilizes fortune tellers and soothsayers and magicians. All these pagan practices used in pagan worship. And not only on the spiritual side is Manasseh an evil, wicked man, but the Bible tells us that Manasseh shed so much innocent blood during his time as king that it filled the streets of Jerusalem from end to end. And the people of Israel followed their king in his evil. And so God has finally had enough of the wickedness of the people of Israel. And in 2 Kings 21, verse 10, it says this, And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all the Amorites did who were before him and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. It's a figure of speech that means it's going to make people, when they hear about what God is going to do, they're going to stop, and they're going to go, Whoa. And I will stretch over Jerusalem, this is verse 13, over Jerusalem, the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So in other words, he is going to thoroughly clean it out. When I was young, my mother would ask me to do the dishes. And then she would often have to go behind me and redo the dishes because there would still be little pieces of food and stuff like that, and nobody wants to eat out of that. God is going to clear out Jerusalem like one cleans out a dish. And in verse 14, And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. God has had enough. And he is going to utterly destroy Jerusalem. And then nothing happens. Nothing happens. Manasseh keeps reigning, and then he dies, and then his son takes power, and Jerusalem is not destroyed. Years go by without this promise coming to pass. But all of a sudden, a new world power enters the scene. Babylon, the capital city of the Chaldeans, led by their king, Nebuchadnezzar, or Nezi, if you feel like that's too much to say. Nebuchadnezzar comes against the Assyrians and he defeats them. 
And that makes him the most powerful man on the planet. And he allows Judah's king, a man named Jehoiakim, to continue to rule. But as a servant of Nebuchadnezzar. And after three years, King Jehoiakim decides he wants to rebel against Babylon. But the Bible says, quote, the Lord sent against him, close quote, armies to destroy Judah. Make no mistake. This is not Babylon coming in to bring destruction. This is the hand of God himself. And he is bringing this destruction. And it tells us that this is specifically because of the sins of Manasseh. Jehoiakim is killed and his son Jehoiakim is given the rule in his place. And he also doesn't learn anything and does evil in the sight of the Lord. And eventually Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem himself and he has his people carry off all the treasures and all the people except for the poorest in the land. He captures Jehoiakim and all his family and puts them into prison in Babylon and installs Jehoiakim's uncle as king, changing his name from Mataniah to Zedekiah so that everybody knows Babylon's in charge. Zedekiah also is wicked because apparently none of these guys are all that bright. And the scriptures tell us that he's wicked because God has cast Judah and Jerusalem out of his presence. And Zedekiah rules for nine years. And then he decides he also wants to rebel against Babylon. And that brings us to 2 Kings chapter 25. So let's look together. 2 Kings chapter 25. And this is what it says. You don't have to stand. You can stay seated. And in the ninth year of his reign, him being, his being Zedekiah, in the 10th month, on the 10th day of the month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came with his army against Jerusalem and laid siege to it. And they built siege works all around it. So the city was besieged till the 11th year of King Zedekiah. On the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Then a breach was made in the city, and all the men of war fled by night by, by the way of the gate between the two walls by the king's garden. And the Chaldeans were around the city, and they went in the direction of the Arabah, but the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho, and all his army was scattered from him. Then they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah, and they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes and put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. In the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, that was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebu, hold on, I practiced this beforehand, Nebuzaradam, there it goes, the captain of the bodyguard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every great house he burned down. 
And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon together with the rest of the multitude, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried into exile. But the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. And the pillars of bronze that were in the house of the Lord and the stands and the bronze sea that were in the house of the Lord, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried, to, and carried the bronze to Babylon. And they took away the pots and the shovels and the snuffers and the dishes for incense and all the vessels of bronze used in the temple service. The fire pans also and the bowls. What was of gold, the captain of the guard took away as gold. And what was of silver, as silver. As for the two pillars, the one sea and the stands that Solomon had made for the house of the Lord, the bronze of all these vessels was beyond weight. The height of the, the one pillar was 18 cubits, and on it was a capital of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits. A latticework and pomegranates, all of bronze, were all around the capital. And the second pillar had the same with the latticework. And the captain of the guard took Sariah the chief priest and Zephaniah the second priest and the three keepers of the threshold. And from the city, he took an officer who had been in command of the men of war and five men of the king's council who were found in the city and the secretary of the commander of the army who mustered the people of the land and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, took them and brought them to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And the king of Babylon struck them down and put them to death at Riblah in the land of Hamath. So Judah was taken into exile out of its land. And over the people who remained in the land of Judah, verse 22, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, son of Shaphan, governor, now, when all the captains and their men heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah governor, they came with their men to Gedaliah at Mitzpah, namely Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and Johanan, the son of Kareah, and Sarariah, the son of Tenhumith, the Netophathite. There you go. And Jezaniah, the son of Machathite, the son of the Machathite. And Gedaliah swore to them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid because of the Chaldean officials. Live in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. But in the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, of the royal family, came with ten men and struck down Gedaliah and put him to death, along with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mitzpah. Then all the people, both small and great, and the captains of the forces arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans." I know that's a lot, but we're going to walk through it together. The first promise that we see is that God promised to destroy the kingdom. God promised to destroy the kingdom. So after Zedekiah decides he's going to rebel, the Babylonians show up and they're really mad. And they really mean business this time. And so they set up siege works all the way around the city. And if you're unfamiliar with what siege works are, essentially the idea is like these kind of catapults or things like that. So they're throwing things into the city, large rocks, uh, diseased bodies, things of that nature. Yeah, it's kind of gross. And they're surrounding the city so no one can escape. And the idea is they're going to choke them off from the outside world. No food can come in. No people can come out. And there is a two-year siege against the city of Jerusalem. Two years. 
And there's a famine that becomes so great there's literally no food. So Zedekiah, the cowardly king, has his soldiers breach the wall under cover of night, and Zedekiah and his troops, they leave. They leave all the people behind to deal with the Babylonian army, the Chaldean army by themselves, and they run away. Now, obviously, this is a silly plan because the whole city is surrounded, and the Chaldeans chase them down, and they capture him. His army flees away, leaves him alone, and they take him to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar makes him watch as he kills his entire family and then plucks out his eyes, puts him in chains, and carries him off into captivity. Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, the hatchet man, as it were, of Nebuchadnezzar, he shows up and it's his task to destroy what is left of the city. So he starts burning down the king's palace and all the great houses and the temple. He starts burning them down. The Chaldean army starts destroying the walls of the city. When you destroy a city's walls, there is no city. So they start destroying the walls of the city. Then he takes the priests, the king's council, the soldiers, and 60 men, 60 people from among the common folk as representatives, and he takes all of them to Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar kills them all. And then they just start taking stuff. They've already taken a lot of the gold and the silver. What's left is the bronze, all the things that they use within the temple, the serving dishes, the snuffers for the candlesticks, just whatever. And they just take it. They take all of it. And when I say that they take all of it, I'm not exaggerating. So you heard in there where it talks about the pillars and it says that the pillar was 18 cubits. That's 27 feet tall. And there were two of them. And they haul these off. It says that they hauled off so much bronze that it was literally beyond weight. They couldn't even weigh it. They had no idea how much bronze they actually had. And they take all of it. And they burn down the temple. They knock down the walls. And then, instead of appointing a king... They appoint a governor, a man named Gedaliah. And Gedaliah tells them, hey, listen, just, just do what they say and it'll be fine. And a member of the royal family comes and assassinates him. And not only does he kill him, but he kills all the Babylonians that are with him. And so everybody who is left freaks out and leaves town and heads to Egypt. It's over. The kingdom is over. 
This is a promise, a terrifying promise that is kept by God. He will judge and punish sin. He will. And so think about this from the perspective of God's chosen people, right? The land that God has promised them is gone. The riches that God has blessed them with are gone. The kingly line that God had given them in David is gone. The temple of God for worship is gone. Protection from their enemies is gone. The priests and their leadership in the worship of God are gone. And the remnants who haven't been killed or carried off into slavery are going back to the place that God brought them out of in the first place. That's not an accident. That is intentional because God wants you to get the picture that it is completely and utterly gone. But this is completely their fault. It's their fault. The people brought this on themselves after following after other gods, just as the Lord told Moses that they would. You know what God told Moses in that passage in Deuteronomy after that? He said, so listen, I'm going to give you a song to teach to the people. Give, I'm going to give you this song. You'll sing it with the people. It'll, it'll be on their hearts, and maybe they'll listen. Maybe they'll remember. They didn't. And this certainly seems like a time that is hopeless. It certainly seems hopeless, doesn't it? It seems like the promises of God have failed. His people are destroyed. His kingdom is destroyed. His temple is destroyed. But in the middle of the hopelessness there. There's some hope. God gives us some hope. See, back in the book of 1 Samuel, Israel demanded a king. The youth and I have been going through 1 and 2 Samuel on Wednesday nights, so they're familiar with this, but they're not paying attention right now. But Israel demanded a king. They said, we want a king. And the reason that they wanted a king was because they wanted to be like the other nations. They didn't want to be a people ruled by God and judged over by a judge. They wanted to have a king. They wanted to have a champion. They wanted someone who would fight their battles for them. They wanted a Messiah. And so they ended up with a man named Saul. And he certainly looked the part. Saul was the most handsome man in all of Israel. 
I don't know how handsome the men of Israel were. So I don't know how handsome Saul was, but he was apparently a pretty good looking dude. He was also very tall. He was literally a full head taller than anybody else in the land of Israel. So he's a tall, good looking dude. And they say, that's the king we want. So they get him. But Saul was not a man of God. And he was, the kingdom was taken from him. And it was given to a man named David. And David was described as a man after God's own heart. And David was certainly not perfect. But he was described as a man after God's own heart. And to David, God makes this promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David wants to build God a house. He says, I, I live in a house of cedar. God lives in a tent. That's not right. And God says to Nathan to tell David this, starting in verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God makes a promise to David. And the promise that he makes to David is that there will be a king of his line, of his bloodline, of his family, on the throne forever. So that's the second promise we see. The line of David. So back in 2 Kings 25, verse 27. And in the 37th year, of the exile of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, in the twelfth month, on the twenty-seventh day of the month. Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiakim put off his prison garments, and every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, 
a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. Things look pretty bleak in verse 26 of 2 Kings 25. All the people have fled to Egypt. And then 37 years go by. And this king, who literally has the word evil in his name, for some reason, frees the king, Jehoiakim, from prison. He is kind to him. No prison garments, a seat above all the other kings, eating at the king's table, given an allowance, and he is allowed to flourish there in Babylon. Why? Because of the promise of God to David. Jehoiakim did not deserve, he did not deserve to be free. He did not deserve to be alive. And yet, God preserved him and spared his life. God showed kindness to him through a pagan king because God is not finished yet. That brings us to our third promise. The promise of Jesus Christ, the promise of already and not yet. You see, the promise that God made to David wasn't ultimately about David. It was about Jesus Christ. The author of the book of Hebrews points this out. He quotes the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5. And he's talking about Jesus. He's saying, hey, look, to which of the angels has he ever said these things? And he gives this list of quotes from the Old Testament. And the one from 2 Samuel 7 is right there in the midst of it. And the idea here is to say that Christ is the fulfillment of those promises. And so the line of David cannot be snuffed out because God has a promise to keep. That's why Jehoiakim is still alive. That's why Jehoiakim is freed from prison because God keeps his promises. And so as we celebrate at Christmas, we know that Christ has come. The first part of that promise has been fulfilled. He was born of the line of David, just as God promised. He lived a sinless life, just as God promised. He died a sinner's death at the hands of men, just as God promised. He defeated death and rose again to life, just as God promised. And he has brought forgiveness and reconciled us back to God just as God promised. Where all the other kings over God's people were sinful, wicked men who failed to obey the word of God, Jesus Christ lived a life of perfect obedience and never failed. He never sinned. He never was wicked. He never led his people astray. He 
is the good and righteous king that God has promised. This is the part of the promise of God that we have already seen fulfilled. But there's more. Because right now, as the scriptures tell us over and over and over again, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. But God has promised that the king will sit on the throne forever. He will sit on the throne forever. So there is a not yet part of the promise. And it's that Jesus will reign over all creation. All things will be brought into subjection and submission to Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There will be no person who does not bow the knee. And this is what we are looking forward to in hope. We are looking forward to this in hope. Because what other hope do we have? Let's just be honest. I can hope in my own riches, what little they are, but they'll be gone. I can hope in my own health, but we all know how quickly that can go astray. I can hope in my family, but as some of you will testify, families often disappoint. There is only one hope, and that is Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the only one who never fails. He's the only one who never disappoints. He's the only one who never veers off course. In 2 Peter chapter 3, it says this, because here's the truth. It's been a long time. It's been a long time since Jesus ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God, and here we are still waiting. Here we are still waiting because we, in our flesh, want immediate fulfillment, right? We were talking this morning about the book of Numbers in Sunday school with the youth, and I pointed out how Eve, after they fell, God promised that he would send a Messiah and Eve gets pregnant and has a son and names him Cain, which means I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. She thought this is the one. This is the offspring who will crush the serpent's head, who will defeat sin and bring us back into the presence of God. And he wasn't. And he wasn't. He killed his brother and was cast out. And Eve died having never had that promise fulfilled. And thousands of years passed before Jesus finally came. And so now here we are, thousands of years later. And Peter writes this. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, and through water by the word of God. And that by means of, of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. 
but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. There's two things. There's two things that we must understand. That for believers, we hope in God because Christ is coming again. Christ is coming again. We look back to Christmas with the hope of the second coming. Because Christ did not stay a baby in a manger. Christ is coming again as a victorious king who will sit on the throne forever. And so, brothers and sisters, we have hope because Christ is coming again. This is the joy of Advent because we know that Christ is coming to save us. We are sojourners in exile in a land that is not our home. But the king is coming. And he will carry us home in victory. But for the non-believer, this is what you must understand. Do not delay in repentance because Christ is coming again. See, the coming of the king is only good news to those who are the king's loyal, obedient subjects. To those who are opposed to the king, the coming of the king is horrifying news. This is the call of Advent, to put your hope in Christ through repentance. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 28 shows us both sides. This is what it says. Start in verse 27 just for a little bit of context. And just as it is, as, as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ is coming to save his people, not to deal with sin. He's not coming to forgive sin a second time. He has been offered once, and that's enough. And so if you think, well, Christ will be gracious to me, and he will be kind to me, when he comes again, he is coming in judgment for those who are not in Christ. And that is a hopeful thing for the heart of the believer and a horrifying thing for those who are not. And so as we enter into our time of invitation, our time of response, 
here is my encouragement to you. Because I cannot call you to anything. I cannot say that God has told you this or that apart from what the scriptures say. But this is my encouragement to you. If you are not in Christ, submit yourself to him today. Surrender your life because it will be surrendered for you one way or another. And if you are in Christ, be joyful, brothers and sisters. We are forgiven. We are redeemed. We have been given life. We have hope in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for your son, for the gift that you have given us of repentance and salvation. So Father, I pray this morning that as we respond to your word, that Father, the Holy Spirit would move in our hearts, that he would draw us to repentance as only he can that he would renew our hope as only he can. Please bless this time, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.